Welcome, everybody, to Innovating Church, the Church Innovations podcast. I'm Casey Sugden, here with my co-host, Rachel Stout, and our other co-host, Patrick Kiefert, who is our guest today, along with a voice that you know and love, uh, Wes Gramberg-Michelson. And uh, we are going to talk about Wes and Patrick's book, How Change Comes to Your Church, a guidebook, for church innovations. Uh, the book is available all sorts of places. It's published by Erdman's, is available on their website, as well as Amazon and other bookstores. Pat, would you pray for us, please? Let us pray. Gracious God, send your spirit to guide uh, this conversation that um, we might actually serve your work in your world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Wes and Patrick, could you uh, tell us a little bit about this book? Why, uh, why this collaboration and what is, uh, what, what's the purpose? Well, I'll start and uh, let my my good friend, Pat, uh, who has so much wisdom over so many years, uh, follow me and probably correct me. But um, there are 350,000 congregations in the United States as best people can uh, number them. Um, a half now are smaller than 100 in size. Uh, sometimes small is beautiful for congregations, but when congregations get below that number, anxiety increases and uh, stability for the future becomes more of an issue. There are friends uh, who have studied this and that have uh, a lot of insight whom Patrick and I know, who say that in the next three decades, 30% or more of congregations are likely to close. Now, when you look at congregations that have undergone some form of change, you find that 62% have a really high congregational vitality, self-reported. And those who say we really haven't changed, only 11% say they have a high congregational vitality. Um, and when you ask them, do we need to make change? A majority say yes, and often add, uh, we don't have the resources or the vision or the leadership to know how, but we know something has to change. I, I think the simple summary of this is that a majority of congregations in the United States understand kind of intuitively that they can't remain the same, they've got to change, but they don't know how. They don't know what are the kinds of steps that they might take. And, and, and they might, you know, they might try to jump at some real uh, easy answers, some five steps, some, you know, bring a consultant in for a weekend to solve their problem but they don't have a deep grasp of what 
transformational missional change really might be like and what it would take. And out of Pat's long experience and my experience, uh, we, we came together and said, uh, we've, got to, we've got to put down the best wisdom we have that might help congregations answer that question. I'm just going to let Wes do that. I think that was great. It's a good description of why we wrote this book. Let's get on to talking about the book. Well, then let's do that. So the first uh, chapter, you talk about um, what needs to change. So what needs to change? Well, what we say uh, is that, uh, you know, when you look at the work of, uh, of Heifetz, who has kind of become a guru in sort of organizational change in society and in organizations, um, he makes a distinction that probably most of the listeners have heard of between technical change and adaptive change. Technical change, it just tries to solve a, a specific problem. For a congregation, it might be how do we get more youth, you know, <laughs> or how do we solve the budget, or how do we get, uh, you know, how do we get uh, worship attendance up? Uh, those kinds of changes might be helpful in the short term, but adaptive change is much more difficult where you really recognize you've got to change the culture of an organization. You've got to go deep and You've got to be willing to fail. You've got to experiment. You've got to find the, this deeper change as you, as you enter into it. Um, and Pat and I also feel that congregations have to come to a, a sense of understanding that they're really facing life and death uh, challenges. That the, you know, this isn't just superficial. This, this really is a matter of, of, of life and death. And that the question is not, uh, how are they gonna survive in 10 years, but rather, uh, how can they enter more fully into God's ongoing mission in the world? And what might that mean for them? Um, we like to say that uh, it's congregational culture that has to change. And I think anyone who's dealt with organizations know it, it's easy enough to, you know, get strategic change that's prompted by, uh, you know, some goals and allocating of staff resources, uh, et cetera. Uh, but real change comes when you change the culture of an organization. And for congregations, Pat and I feel that's really the case. And so the agenda of what needs to change runs pretty deep, Rachel. Uh, so I, I want Pat to kind of fill in what I've missed. Well, one of the interesting things is um, when this book came out just a few months ago, right, but less than nine months ago, uh, I was having a conversation with one of our ELCA bishops, was explaining, we really believe in what you're up to, Pat, that we have worked with him uh, a number of years ago. And um, he said, but the fact of the matter is, 
the vast majority of our congregations uh, know there's something wrong, but they, they're mostly worried about survival or if they're doing okay, they're mostly about improving, they're doing okay. And they just don't see the depth of the change you're inviting them to as necessary. Well, let me tell you, that's over with. The, the recognition that local churches and the church as a whole face an adaptive challenge. Remember, let's just remind ourselves bluntly about that. This is a life or death matter. Two, we're incompetent. We know we don't know what to do. And there's not some solution out there as to how to do it. Someone doesn't already have the silver bullet to solve this problem. And number three, we're going to have to get back to the basics in order to do this. I don't have to make that argument anymore. I'm on Zoom consulting almost every day. What I am dealing with are laity clergy uh, leaders in the church overwhelmed, exhausted, running after every possibility, almost unable to determine anything in terms of priorities for what they need to do. I was having a conversation with a major leader, African-American leader in the mainline church, who was, uh, is exhausted, she said, from being asked to speak on the questions around anti-racism, finally we're in some ways coming to terms with 400 plus years of the, the reality of, of slavery and the enduring power of racism. And she said, she keeps trying to invite leaders to deep spiritual transformation and cultural transformation as the primary thing. And the re best response in almost every case, she said, is, yes, but that's just one more thing we got to do. What mm -hmm. needs to change? This is about the reign of God. This is about, I got a, a Mennonite friend, New Testament scholar, Nelson Crable, who always likes to say, uh, the beginning of the transformation of the world begins with me. God takes care of the rest. <laughs> and I listen to us as we are running around like chickens with our head cut off. The church can be, and the local church can be a very rare place in this time in which the kind of change, yes, we, we have to do uh, adaptive change, but adaptive change begins with what God is up to. What is God's preferred and promised future? Mm -hmm. And that takes spiritual disciplines to attend to. I'm not saying this is any easier for me than it is anyone else. You know, of course, when we're, we're like the disciples in the boat in Mark 5, 
and the storm is all around and we're going down and it looks like Jesus is simply asleep in the back of the boat. This book introduces not some interesting pious notions that Wes Granberg Mickelson and I have, but what we have seen work when real adaptive challenge has to take place. Uh, but that it's hard work. Yep. And you don't have to convince people it needs to be done now, but the panic is in, unbelievable. And the exhaustion and hurrying to do things that make us feel like, you know, uh, the church still counts. Sorry, that was a sermon, but every day I'm encountering this. And it's a, I really feel for our leadership, uh, they're, they're, they're exhausted. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, I, I want to jump ahead off of Pat and um, point out how in the next chapter, chapter two, is titled Making Space. And what we argue there is that for real change to happen, there first has to be what you might call a disruption. You, you have to stop doing business as usual. You gotta figure out how to create a free and open space uh, where there can be a more imaginative uh, apprehension of the spirit's work and, and, and of the reality that, that we face and what, as Pat says, God's preferred and promised future might be. And I often find, and, I, and Pat does, that this is one of the most difficult things, you know, to, to tell a congregation, look, if you just keep having the meetings of your consistory or your concession or your session or whatever it is and do business as usual, nothing's gonna happen. Well, the coronavirus has now done this job for every single congregation. It has, it, it has disrupted the normal activity of every congregation. And it has placed questions before us that we otherwise would want to avoid. So I, as, as Pat says, you know, we don't want to waste a pandemic. And, and, and there's a real opportunity presented by uh, what's happened in this terrible tragedy that it, it, amongst other things, it kind of makes it kind of makes the first half of chapter two irrelevant, because because we no longer have to figure out how we how we how we open up space for the questions we need to ask. So I don't know if that if that's helpful, Rachel, but I wanted to jump right in to what Pat had said. No, it is. But what both of you seem to be sort of urging congregations to do at this moment, because um, there's really no better time. Um, instead of um, sort of pulling ahead in a frantic pace to try to do everything, instead it's sort of sort of slow down and really ask the questions um, that are at the heart of the change that you're you're talking about. Um, and to do that, not only do you have to sort of slow the pace of of uh, sort of life down, which the pandemic has done in some ways, but you have to sl maybe slow the pace that the individual is going at. 
Um, cause even if, even if life has sort of, there's the brakes have been put on, you know, many of us are still sort of, um, charging ahead, um, and maybe working more and trying harder than before. Um, is, did I, did I hear you both right? Um, that, that really you're advocating for a slowing down and a, you know, um, and, and, and taking on those, that spiritual discipline of, of really trying to figure out what God is calling the local congregation to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I, I like to say that change is not punctual. Uh, it, it, it does not go on this neat orderly timetable that we want to push ahead. Uh, you got to realize that you're, you must be willing to move into what we call liminal space, uh, where you begin to put the questions out there and you know you don't immediately have all the answers. It's like what, um, uh, it's an example that came from uh, Richard Rohr. It's like a trapeze artist where you're holding on to one trapeze and then you let go as you are grasping for the other one that you haven't caught yet and you're right in between. That's what it's like. Pat? Yeah, I, and this, interestingly enough, moves us quite naturally in the conversation to the third chapter in the book, uh, which is, first one, you know, if you get, this is about adaptive change, this is about deep cultural shift, and in the second, you realize there's got to be a place for this, a space and time, uh, you, and you got to, <laughs> that takes a lot of work to establish that, then you have to say, now, how do we go deep enough to create a sense of, I call it a deep yearning. Can you help people truly long for God's will to, to be open to discernment and, and just go, we don't know. We don't have to know. This is life or death. It's too important to, to treat it like it's an easy answer to that openness. And I, I can tell you that that is hard work for me. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I like to get things done and I like a plan for getting them done. And I like to win. Yep. Believe me. Uh, deeply, I, I, you, and you'll never take it out of me till the, the trumpet sounds. But uh, I, if you're going to help a local church or a church system, and remember, we've got experience from international and church systems and entire church bodies, as well as local churches and examples, abundant examples. Uh, of all of those in this book, creating that longing, that genuine setting of discernment for, you know, it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy, but when that happens, wow, uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. 
uh, and I, I, I've learned to attend to it. I wait for it to happen in a church or in a system. And when it does, it's, uh, as one of my uh, colleagues who's a, a church consultant at Church Innovation says, it's a God moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but, and the other thing is, this is not mysterious. Here's the thing I gotta underline. There's a tendency for us when we use language of the spirit or discernment to go all fuzzy romantic. Let me tell you, uh, my, my co-author here is about as practical a politician as I've <laughs> ever known. I mean, he, uh, you know, the first time I heard of him, he was uh, top of the staff of a United States senator in the wrong party from my point of view. <laughs> so uh, had, the, had, had, had the right point of view to the senator I was working for, who was on the other side of the aisle. But, this is a practical politician. This is someone who, you know, has spent 30 plus years in the 40 plus years uh, in the practical business of, of not just church politics, but politics in various different settings. But the one thing we both have come to recognize is those God moments where all of a sudden people really are open to discernment and it happens and there are practical ways to do that it is not this is not twilight zone you understand this is not an appeal to the supernatural this is an appeal to the movement of the spirit the the creative spirit that is deeply embedded since the beginning of creation and is promised by our lord himself to his church. This is very down to earth. This is very embodied. But it's a very different way of doing business. So, it is, you know, as, as, as someone like Victor Turner or Arnold Van Gennep would call it, it is entering liminal space. But human beings are meant to do that. There's nothing, this, this is very down to earth and very human. I, I cannot un, uh, emphasize that more because the tendency is to place these things into mysticism or, uh, or irrationality or uh, uh, supernatural. I'm sorry, it's not. It's very natural. It's very down to earth. So I'm just curious, uh, what what do you say then to those that desire, we just want to return to normal? Because I, I hear that a lot um, from my own people. You know, Can we just go back to the way it was before all of this? Can we just go back to normal? Well, I, I really think, Rachel, uh, that that question begs uh, a deeper underlying uh, issue, uh, namely, is there a belief that the normal we knew would get us to the future we desire? And you've got to ask that question. Would the normal we knew bring us to the future 
that we desire and that more appropriately that God desires? And I think the answer to that for, for most congregations is simply no. But you, but you have to have the honesty to, to put the question that way. It, it is, it's so clear that, of course, people can only take so much anxiety and it begins to boil over. I, I, I often feel that um, anxiety is like, a, like a, a, you know, water boiling in a pot. And, and, and you've got to heat it up to make change. There's a good friend of both uh, Pat and me named Dick Wellscott, who was my director of new church development and one of the smartest guys about congregational change and, and in our case, changing our whole denomination that I ever knew. And I talk in our staff cabinet meetings about how, you know, we've got to get at this change. And, and Dick would say, well, you won't be able to do it. And I'd say, why not? And he'd say, because the anxiety isn't high enough yet. A certain amount of anxiety is really necessary in order to provoke the change necessary in a system. But it can also boil over. And with COVID-19, a lot of our congregations are feeling the reality that it's just all boiled over. And when you do that, what do you want to do? You just want to clean up and turn off the heat and get it back to what it was like. That's not going to work. It's not going to work. Um, I was thinking, Rachel, of, of an example. And this example that I cite in the book, uh, you know, Pat points out that, um, you know, we've had wide experience both with, with congregations and with denominational systems. And, um, and when Pat was talking, I was thinking of a quote from a French theologian I really like. Um, Everything begins with mysticism and ends in politics. <laughs> and and I, I, think there's, I think there's really something to that. But when I became general secretary of my denomination, the General Reformed Church in America, I met with our general city council and I was trying to figure out how did this even happen to me? And what are, how in the world are we gonna get at the change that I clearly see we need? Because this system like most Protestant systems was way over governed. You know, we had a general synod meeting every year. That wasn't enough. We had to have a general synod council of 60, 65 people meeting three times a year. And every time that would meet, you know, You'd, staff would start writing the report for the next one, and you were just you were just encumbered by this by this heavy process of governance in methodical ways, governed by Robert's rules and constrained in such a way. So I went to the first meeting of my general city council, and it was almost like it was just like a hunch, and, and it was a risk. I said, well. What if for our next meeting, uh, we don't have any workbook? We don't prepare a single paper. And the only thing we do is that we all commit to read the book of Acts. And then we're gonna gather at, a, at the Franciscan Retreat Center outside of Phoenix in January. And we're gonna have a time where we reflect on a series of questions around what is, what is God really desiring? to find a way. And the only reason why the Journal Center Council said yes is because I was a new guy in the block and, you know, they weren't going to immediately say no. 
But that turn was like one of those God moments. I mean, it began to open up a process in ways that, that let in the questions and discernment and searching that, that our normal system of governance was just squeezing out. And so I, I think you can, you know, I, I, I think you could apply that from a congregational level all the way up to a denominational structure, even all the way up to a huge ecumenical structure like the World Council of Churches. It's the same, the same kind of principle, I'd, I'd argue. So before we uh, wrap up today's section, I am... Um... I find all of this very helpful, and I, like Rachel, in my uh, congregation, have uh, some of those same questions of, you know, when can we get back to normal or whatever normal is going to be, and understanding that uh, congregations are made up of people in all sorts of different places in their life, and we have some people for whom the anxiety is boiling over, and some people for whom it is, you know, just uh, creating a nice simmer. Um, if you uh, were a pastor or a lay leader in a congregation and you know uh, that you're not on the path, the church is not on the path to uh, where uh, God desires you to be, what's a practical first step? Um, where do uh, I as a pastor or I as a lay leader in the church start from, take those first steps? Well, the, the, I'm going to go back to my, my, my friend, Nelson Cravel. You know, the transformation of the world begins with me. God, God takes care of the rest. Uh, I, I find that um, the, to have some sort of rule of life or to have some spiritual uh, practices in place in my own life makes a massive difference everywhere else. Uh, and so I would begin there. Uh, when we come back to do the, our second podcast, we're going to start with what I take, and uh, both uh, Wes and I take to be the most practical and profoundly uh, changing uh, act of dwelling in God's word as a communal activity over an extended period of time in a whether it's in uh, a local church or uh, even a church body i mean it was not an accident that west said let's spend time in the book of acts uh it, it made a huge difference as an outside observer as an outside consultant watching the reformed church in america it was astounding to contrast it with five other national church bodies we were researching at the time uh, uh, because of a Lilly Endowment study, where it's not that the Bible doesn't play a role. The real question is, what role does it play? The real question isn't that uh, people believe in God or don't believe in God, but do they have a way of getting a God-centered self-definition. They have some sort of very practical down-to-earth way every day to be reminded who they are and, and what their calling is. It's, it's very practical. I guarantee you it's the most practical advice I've ever taken. It's the most 
practical advice I've ignored <laughs> to my own detriment. And it's the most practical advice I've ever given that's made a massive, it's, it's not telling a pastor, oh, oh you know, uh, you, what you need is to, uh, to have a self-definition. Get yourself a self-definition so you're not anxious presence, which you'll pardon me, as true as that is, is a pile of crap because there's no quicker way to make a person self-conscious and anxious than to tell them, you know, get a self-definition and be a non-anxious presence, right? I mean, how many times have you had someone well-meaning tell you, you know, don't worry, yeah, they're out to get you, but, you know, just get a, a non-anxious presence. You know, so the sounds, uh, outrageously Pollyannish, but I'm telling you, this is practical advice. Uh, these spiritual practices and them are, are essential, especially in times like this. Uh, you know, I'd follow Casey uh, answering your question. When I deal with uh, congregations, interact with them now over Zoom, the congregation Karn and I belong to, et cetera. What I see pastors doing, and I wonder whether this is the temptation for you or for Rachel, because you're both gifted pastors. You, you, you want to really struggle to figure out how do you keep things going? You know, let's, let's keep activity going. We got to shift away. Okay. How do we keep the service going? How do we, how do we, you know, do we do it online? How do we do it well online? What kind of groups can we keep these groups going? Can we keep, let's get some joint calls. Let's get the, let's get the choir together on a Zoom call. Let's get, you know, let's keep things going. And that, and that's completely understandable because, because past every single pastor is wondering what's going to happen to my congregation. But what if you took, what if you figured out a way to simply create a space and, and say, you know, I, I, I want to give congregational members an opportunity to just reflect on what do they experience God doing in this time? What are your, what, what, what are your hopes? What are your fears? What, what, are you, what are you discovering? You know, an, an opportunity for, for members of the congregation you, I don't know, maybe if you, you know, maybe you do this in five different separate Zoom calls with different groups or figure out some way, but you provide a space that instead of saying to congregational members, look, we can continue doing this this way, virtually, blah, blah, blah. Instead, you say, we want to hear, we want to take a little time to hear what is really going on in your life and in your spiritual journey. Uh, and your reflection, because I tell you, con congregational members are full of questions and anxieties and hopes and yearnings, and I think it's important that that uh, as a first step, you said, Casey, Casey, you give that opportunity for congregational members. Thank you. Sorry. There you are. Uh, there I am. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, very much. Um, 
for all of for, for all of you out there, please uh, pick up the book, but also know that there is there are workshops slated uh, all over uh, starting September 19th, and you can register for those workshops. They're virtual uh, on the Church Innovations website. So you can go to that website and register for really any of them that are taking place. The first one is September 19th. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And Wes, would you pray us out as we go today? Sure. Our gracious God, we, we are grateful to remember that the journey we all are on is one in which you have beckoned us ahead. We are grateful that you are the one who shapes the future. And we ask for the wisdom and discernment and the trust to be open to discovering what that might be for the sake of your son, even our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today. And that has been this installment of the Innovating Church podcast. <laughs>